What is the holiest, godliest thing that you could possibly do? Maybe pray or read your Bible or come to the gathering where you get to do both at the same time together with God's people. If you made a list of the 10 most God-glorifying activities that you could spend your time on, I wonder what would be on it, and I wonder what would definitely not be on it. As you think about your day, you think about your weeks, your months, your years, I wonder what would make that list top 10 most glorifying, God-glorifying things you could do. What would not make that list? Your answer to that question is very important, for it reveals your thinking about the nature of living in God's world. What is good? What is bad? What is neither good nor bad, just blank, but necessary, perhaps, or unavoidable. To simplify the question, how do you live a life that pleases God? How do you live a life that pleases God? The church in Ephesus, where Timothy served, faced the same question, and some of the answers that were being provided to them were false. And not just a little bit false. As if they were close but missed the target just a little bit. They were dangerously false, heading full steam in the opposite direction as the truth. And this false teaching that had to do with the answer to this question, this false teaching was demonic and deceitful and damning, as we'll see in more depth this morning. It was a serious matter that Paul was calling on Timothy to address. First Timothy chapter 4. This morning, First Timothy chapter 4. I'll read verses 1 to 5. If you've not already, uh, please turn and follow along uh, as I read this aloud. First Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer." Start off looking at the danger of false teaching. Four, four points, danger of false teaching, nature of false teaching, the face of false teaching, and the fight against false teaching that we're going to see in this passage today. First, the danger of false teaching. Paul's warning to Timothy comes directly from God. We see that verse one, the Spirit, capital S, is talking about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit expressly or clearly, unequivocally, states that this danger is coming. This could be, and I think probably most likely, a, a reference to a direct revelation that Paul, as an apostle, received from the Holy Spirit to warn the church. We could look at some other passages. It's like, well, maybe, it's, maybe he's talking about what Jesus said. Maybe it's talking about what he said uh, in Acts chapter 20. But um, either way, it's from the Spirit through an apostle to the church, and we have it here in front of God's word for us. And what is it that the Holy Spirit, through Paul, is warning the church about? Well, 
the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. So we could see later times, they could have read that and we could read that and be like, oh, shoo, it's not a problem for us. That's for somebody else to have to deal with. But that's just really missing the mark of what the New Testament talks about with later times or last days. As you read this passage, I don't think that Timothy would have been like, oh, wow, okay, so some people later will have to deal with that. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on at Ephesus, but at least this isn't a concern. No, it's, it's obvious from this passage that for them, then, Timothy and Ephesus, and us, now, these warnings apply. So we are in that later times. We're in those last days. This passage applies to us. This warning is not something just for someone else, someplace else, some other time, but it's a warning to us about a danger that the church then and the church now is facing. And the danger of false teaching is something that followers of Christ are constantly facing. You'd think like this early on in the history of the church, just a few decades out from the resurrection of Christ, it's like there would have been a honeymoon period. Or maybe, you know, our church has only been around for a few years, so maybe we don't have to worry about false teaching. That's for, that's for later churches. The devil's just gonna be like, oh, they haven't even been around 10 years yet. Uh, I guess we'll give them a pass. You know, it's like, but boy, once that date comes, we're gonna, we're gonna come after them. Yeah, that doesn't, it doesn't work like that. What was true then remains true today. The response is the same, that we must be on guard. As believers, no coasting spiritually is allowed. If you are being passively carried along, I would say you are being passively carried along by false doctrine, right? Our flesh, the world, the devil is, is drawing us away from truth. And so if you're just sort of sliding or coasting, it's not in the right direction. We need to be on guard we need to be aware of the danger. And that's what Paul says here. Uh, some will depart from the faith. That's the danger that Paul is warning about, departing from the faith. We would refer to this uh, as apostasy. I'm sure it's a word that maybe uh, is familiar, maybe wonder what the different definitions of that are, but that's what he's talking about. And what that means, what does apostasy mean? It means professing faith in Jesus Christ, and then leaving that profession. Like we talk about repentance from sin, heading in one direction and turning to head the other direction. Apostasy is trusting in Christ and a turning from that to abandon that profession, abandoning it, turning away from Christ and his gospel and his church. And do you recognize that this is a danger that you face? Again, this isn't a warning to somebody else, someplace else at some other time. It's a danger that's presented throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, in front of people gathered together in churches. But like, are you aware that this is a danger that you face? It's like, oh, Peter, are you trying to scare me? I'd say, well, more like trying to make sure that you're awake. Right? There are potential dangers that we face, but there's a difference between fretting all night that a thief is going to break into your house and checking the locks on your doors and windows before you go to sleep. Are you aware of the danger? We're facing the danger, then facing it and moving forward vigilantly. The importance of being vigilant. We must remain aware and vigilant. Believers individually and gathered together into churches are never exempt from attack. We are always threatened by our enemies, the world, our own flesh, and the devil. And this is why we must remain vigilant. False teaching exists. It exists today. 
And it is a threat to our church and a threat to our souls. Our eyes, our ears must be open to what is being taught. Like pay attention to what I'm saying, both, both to, to learn from it, but also as is biblical to test it, right? Pay attention so you'd be like, is this biblical? If it is, then believe it and follow it as true. If it's not, then don't follow it. And if what I'm saying is not biblical, then get me out of here, right? This pulpit must be to those committed to the teaching of God's word. It's a non-negotiable. Our minds and our hearts must be constantly recentered on Christ and his gospel. That's the active pursuit of being aware of danger and, and opposing that. What is the nature of false teaching? What, what is it in its characteristics? Paul's warning is that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to something else. Once again, this isn't just a passive. It's not like, well, I just won't. I'm just not going to do anything. I'm just going to remain neutral. There's no neutrality that's happening, right? You're, you're following Christ or you're opposed to Christ. And again, those aren't static positions. Not like, I'm just going to stand here and just wait and see how it turns out. Right? This reminds me of, of Elijah on Mount Carmel talking to all of Israel gathered. It's just like it, either Yahweh is God or Baal is God. Stop trying to just keep feet in both camps. Pick a side. Right? And God, Yahweh, the Lord, proves his rightness, the trueness, his own divinity of that. So they're devoting themselves to something else when they depart from the faith. They are replacing their commitment to Christ with a, with tr uh, and his truth, replacing that with a different commitment. See, false teaching will worm its way into their hearts and draw them away from the true gospel. Same danger that we face. You can see in verses 1 and 2 that they will devote themselves to deceitful spirits teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And so from this text, I think we can see false teaching is demonic and deceitful and damning. And it's all D's, so it's supposed to be easier for you to remember. First, it is demonic. And we can understand false teaching as demonic, deceitful spirits teaching of teachings of demons. We can understand that in one of two ways. One, it could, Paul could be saying, it's, this false teaching is, is demon-like. It leads people astray like demons do. Or he could be saying that this te teaching is actually from demons, like demonically whispered and, and led about and brought into existence. Maybe willingly or unwillingly, these false teachers are being influenced by demons. Now, we live in an anti-supernatural age. So some people reading this text might scoff at the thought of the existence of angels or demons, let alone their involvement in human affairs. We're far more rational, far smarter than that. We look at scripture. The Bible clearly speaks about a spiritual realm that exists as truly as our physical realm exists. There is physical universe. There is a spiritual existence in that realm. And it's not like they're just separate. There's interaction. We see that throughout scripture. In that realm are servants and messengers of God, angels, 
and fallen evil spirits that seek to cause harm, produce fear, promote sin, and draw people away from God and from truth. Even as Paul says of Satan, the chief of these demons, he blinds the eyes of unbelievers so that they would not see and grasp the gospel. And false teaching either comes directly from demons or it aligns with the work of demons. And we're not to have a, a strict line between those things. False teaching is demonic. Hopefully that's something that perks us up a little bit. Like, okay, well, that's, I don't want to be, I don't want to be demonically influenced in my life. I hope nobody's like, yeah, I think that would sound like a good idea. Hopefully not. Really foolish. Nature of false teaching is demonic. It's also deceitful. The demons that are associated with this false teaching are called deceitful spirits. When I think of deceit, I don't think of blatant, obvious lies. I think of deceit. I think it looks more like tricky, subtle lies that plant seeds of doubt regarding God and his truth. It's attacking questions that drive us to look elsewhere for answers while avoiding God's word. Okay, hear that. It's not just demonic, deceitful things produce questions. We all have questions. Where do you go to answer the questions? Is it like, forget the Bible. I'm going to go find answers elsewhere. Okay, that's the, that's the deceiver. What are the questions? What does God's word say? Let me talk to somebody about this. That's, that's faith. We're all living that. Right? If we can't admit that we all have questions, if we all think that we have perfect understanding and never have any doubts, I think we're just lying to each other. That's hypocrisy. This text addresses that type of hypocrisy. Let's not live like that. But when your questions are like, let me close my Bible, set it on the shelf, and find else answers elsewhere, that's, that's the dangerous position. I hope we see the difference between that. Think through the deceitful strategies that Satan has used as we see in God's word, like in the Garden of Eden. Did God actually say? No, 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 no. You will not surely die. We don't need that strict of an interpretation of God's word. Like We just need it in its broader sense. Also in the wilderness as he tempted Jesus, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, if you're so special, if this is true, why don't you prove it? God will protect you, right? Why don't you just make sure of those things, right? Little seeds of doubt, little acts of trickery. That's the devil's strategy to use tricky question and twisting of God's words to cause us to wander from God and from his truth. See, sometimes false teaching may be brash and may be overt. Jesus is not God, or you can be saved by good works. Maybe it's just flashing light against scripture. We certainly face those type of dangers. But when those are embraced or promoted by those who profess the name of Christ, it's almost guaranteed that more subtle deceptions have taken root long before that. You don't, you don't just go from orthodoxy to rejecting the divinity of Jesus in a single decision. It just doesn't work like that. Deceit has happened along the way, and it's subtle. And the more subtle it is, the more that we need to be aware of it. Most deceptions will be subtle. They will be cloaked. Not all false teaching will even be directly related to specific truth claims. 
but they will deceptively undermine your confidence in the truth claims of scripture. They will draw you away from God and from his word. The false teachers themselves who are promoting this demonic, deceitful teaching, do we see how Paul describes them in verse two? Insincere, hypocritical, that's what that word means. Insincerity of liars or hypocritical liars whose consciences are seared. Consciences. We all have a conscience. Inner voice, what's right, what's wrong? Do I deserve to be rewarded? Do I deserve to be punished? Something that we can't necessarily trust. It's interesting and it's a whole other discussion, but it's like something that we, we must follow, but we must train, must question. Right? Okay, I, I have to do what a conscience is or I'm gonna be sinning, but is my conscience really acting according to God's word or do I need to train my conscience according to God's word? The answer is yes, you need to train your conscience according to God's word. But as your conscience is like, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, and you ignore that over and over and over again, it's, it's searing it, it's deadening it, right? You sear something with that hot poker, then the feeling's not gonna be there anymore. A sharp pain followed by no feeling. Well, that, that's profoundly dangerous, right? When it doesn't hurt anymore. When the voice no longer tells you, this is wrong, that's dangerous. And it happened to these hypocritical, insincere liars. It was a gradual process where their hearts had been deadened to their inner awareness that their teaching was indeed wrong. Maybe it was a little sin here and a little rejection there that hardened their hearts, deadened their consciences or seared it. Pretty soon it didn't seem wrong anymore. Pretty soon it sounded right. Pretty soon evil looked good and good looked evil. And then they were left with no genuine Christian beliefs. Yet they remained in Christendom, peddling their false teaching and perhaps insincerely, hypocritically pretending that they were still faithful to the gospel. This is the truth. This is how you should live. Paul's warnings about these things are strong and that's because the false teaching is demonic, it is deceitful, and it is also damning. This false teaching is anti-gospel and devoting yourself to it means departing from the faith, abandoning the gospel, rejecting truth. And if someone continues to do this without repentance, continues to reject truth with a deadened conscience and a lack of repentance, it demonstrates that they never genuinely believed in the first place. Theirs was a false profession. They never truly turned to Christ. Therefore, they remain dead in their sins. They are still under God's eternal judgment against their sin. So take this warning seriously that this might not happen to you. Don't play around with false teaching. Don't coast in your spiritual life and don't reject the truth. Cling to Christ. Keep believing. Never stop repenting. And as you doubt and as you sin, for we all do, we all doubt, we all sin. As you do that, turn to God to get answers and to find help and to find strength. Don't turn away. Don't fall away. Don't depart from the faith through false teaching. The danger of false teaching 
the nature of false teaching, but so far I've spoken fairly generically about this false teaching. And while there are many varieties of false teaching that could be addressed, that could be warned about, Paul centers in on one and provides us with some specifics. So we see now the face of false teaching. If you were to jot down, I said, when you think about demonically influenced behavior, you picture somebody demonically possessed, demonically influenced, I wonder what would come to your mind. My guess is it would probably be a life given over to lawless debauchery, right? Rampant substance abuse and unrestrained immorality or violent abuse, right? That's what it would look like to be demonically influenced. And that, that certainly could be true, but is it what Paul warns about here? Read the passage. Maybe you paid attention. It's Paul saying, be careful of these deceitful spirits who encourage lawless, godless, wicked, depraved behavior. Is that what he warns about in this text? It's not. Apparently, we need more categories. What does this demonic false teaching look like according to verse 3? Do you see it? What is the content or the face of their false teaching? First, these insincere, hypocritical, demonically influenced, seared, conscienced, lying false teachers forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. Forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from certain foods. That's the face of false teaching here. Not the face of all false teaching, but the face of this specific false teaching that Paul is warning Timothy and the church at Ephesus about. Based off of other examples of non-Christian teachings, the problem with marriage was likely centered around the enjoyment of intimacy in marriage. And the enjoyment of the problem with foods likely centered around eating certain types of meat or perhaps eating any meat at all. In other passages, Paul interacts with certain, uh, certain abuses about, about meat or certain things with, with marriage. In training hour today, we talked a little bit about the, the church in Corinth. They face problems in both of these type of things. But these type of denials, don't get married, don't enjoy intimacy in marriage, don't eat these type of foods because that, that, that intimacy, that food, those are things that are pleasurable. Those are things that are enjoyable. We have to stay away from that. That's what this, this teaching is saying. And denying things simply because they are pleasurable or because they are enjoyable, sometimes referred to as asceticism. An ascetic. I don't know if you've heard that. Not aesthetic. Ascetic. And those that deny themselves the enjoyment of these things do so to increase their spirituality or to prove their religious fervor. Look how holy I am, because I don't do this. See, that's, that's what the message that the false teachers are spreading, a message of you will please God if you don't, and fill in the blank. So defining the relationship with God out of these things negatively, or we could say God will accept you through or based on these self-denials. This is how God will accept you if you don't get married, if you don't eat these certain foods. That's how God will accept you. It's a message of salvation through self-denial. Salvation through self-denial, and that is a false gospel. It is not 
biblical. We could rightly ask the question, isn't this world and our flesh, isn't the world sinfully obsessed with excessive pleasure and enjoyment? And the answer to that would clearly be what? Yes, no question. And this, it wasn't like they were more pious than we were back in Ephesus in the first century. Read just a like Western Civ 101 textbook on Ephesus and you'll know they were not given to piety. Uh, Their worship was not God-honoring in any way, shape, or form. So it was true then, it was true now. The world and our flesh, our own hearts, sinfully obsessed with excessive pleasure and enjoyment. But this false teaching of complete avoidance is a hard turn overreaction to sinful excesses. See, it's the ditch on the other side of the path of living for God's glory. There is a path, living for God's glory, living in the world that God created in a way that's pleasing to him. And we're aware of the ditch on one side of diving into the excesses. But what we need to realize is that there's another ditch on the other side that in avoiding it, avoiding ditch one, excess, you can fall into another ditch and still not be pleasing to the Lord. See, that's the danger that we have to face. I've heard people explain sanctification as avoiding sin by staying as far away as possible from certain potentially sinful activities. That's the life that's pleasing God. Stay as far away from it as possible, failing to recognize that it's not a cliff of safety over here, but it's actually another cliff or that other ditch. Is immodesty a sin? Well, I mean, 1 Timothy 2 tells us to, to be clothed appropriately. Well, then let's make sure all skirts drag along the floor so they aren't too short. Is gluttony a sin? Yes. Well, then let's only eat raw vegetables. Let's just starve ourselves all the time just to make sure that we don't fall into this ditch. Is drunkenness a sin? Yes. Well, then no one should ever touch a drop of alcohol. Is laziness a sin? Yes. Well, then work all the time. Do some people dishonor God through gambling? Yes. Well, we had better throw away all decks of playing cards because you can't gamble without them. Are we sinfully over-entertained? Well, then let's never watch or read anything not Bible or theology-related ever again. Is immorality a sin? Well, then we must never speak of or experience the joy of intimacy in marriage. Do people worship nature? Well, we better stay inside. I don't know that anybody actually says that one, but it's the same. Somebody worships a tree. Chop them down, all of them. You know, Do you see, it's hard turn over reaction to these type of things. And here's the problem, yeah. Do some people dance inappropriately? Well, some people just shouldn't dance. You're looking at one of them, but David danced and apparently, well, his wife thought he looked silly too, but different story. Here's the problem. Many that engage in these behaviors, these, these restrictions, some are seeking to protect themselves from sin. That's, that's good. Not everybody, scripture's clear, not everyone can engage in everything in the way that Paul is instructing here. Right? There are limitations. There are temptations that certain one of us face. But here's the problem. When you build a fence for yourself to guard your own flesh, then you insist that every other Christian do the same thing. That's a problem. I don't know how, I know that I can't do this in a way that honors God, or I'm not sure how I could do this in a way that honors God. Therefore, nobody can do this in a way that honors God. Therefore, it is always wrong. That's the thinking, and it's false teaching. 
And then the biggest problem is that those lists become their definition of Christianity. And if you go around our Bible Belt state where everybody has a grandpa who is a preacher and you ask them what Christianity means, it's like, oh, it's the Christians are the people who don't do X, Y, and Z. Nothing about repentance, nothing about faith, nothing about Christ. That's a false gospel, and it's a problem. It's a problem that we face. It's a problem that could creep into our own hearts. Christians are just people who don't, really? Like, that's it? What does that have to do with, no, people who do believe, people who do repent, people who are sinners. That's what Christianity is. Rescued sinners, because one was righteous, and he, he's not sitting anywhere in this church right now. He's here. He's ruling over the gathering. But it's Christ, not us. And this type of overreaction to potentially sinful activities is not extra spiritual. It's what it feels like. It's what it looks like. But it's not. It's actually its own type of sinfulness. If your relationship with God is built on your behavior, like these false teachers promoted, that is legalism. Terms thrown out all the time and misused, but this is what it is. Legalism is your relationship with God is based on you and your righteousness and your behavior. That is a false gospel. That is false teaching. It's actually anti-gospel. It replaces a bondage to sin with a bondage to self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is also sin. You don't have freedom if you're bound to self-righteousness. You've just changed prison cells. And while this type of grit-your-teeth denial might seem like it will eventually cause you to progress in holiness, the opposite is actually true. Paul makes this point very clearly. Colossians chapter two, he's speaking of things. He says, you know, there are regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And he says that these things are according to human, like merely human precepts and teachings. And then he says this, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Like, well, wouldn't that make sense? If, if, if I could sin and I just stay all the way away from it, like that's, that's, that makes sense that I'll never sin if I'm never anywhere near it. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. That's not good. Asceticism, we already mentioned that term. And severity to the body. Here's his point. These restrictions, do not taste, do not handle, do not touch, don't get married, don't eat meat. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This type of commands, we're not talking about obedience to God's word, we're talking about adding these things and basing your relationship with God off of your behavior through that type of strict asceticism, self-denial by which you are the one who pleases God and unlike those other people, false gospel, useless in actually addressing your heart problem. Let me give you an example. Soda, clearly not a really healthy beverage option. I mean, if you drink it, like, I don't think anybody's like, this is really good for me. Like. Drink it or don't drink it. Again, I'm not like saying like, well, don't eat meat is wrong, but don't drink soda is fine. So this is not the point. A few years ago, I made a New Year's resolution to not drink soda for a whole year, hoping to lose a taste for it. And one year later, soda still tasted good. And so I was like, well, it just wasn't long enough. So then I made a resolution 
After that fail, I would go bigger. French fries, also obviously not healthy. So I decided to go five years without eating French fries, and I did it. And then I discovered at the end of those five years that oil and salt still taste delicious. <laughs> no matter what they're covering, all I learned is that resolutions don't change taste buds. Physically and spiritually, the lesson is the same. It's not, you're, you're just adding fences or building those is just you trying through your own strength to please God and it doesn't work. You didn't actually change anything. Cage a wild dog and do nothing else. Next time the dog gets out, it's still wild. Just because something can be abused sinfully doesn't mean that the proper response is to completely avoid it. That is not the extra godly thing to do. Here's one way in which this false teaching is demonic. Satan, the deceiver, our adversary, he does not care whether you are a glutton or an ascetic so long as you are focused on your behavior and ignoring God. He doesn't care. Eat too much, donate anything at all, but just obsess about either and ignore faith and repentance. And he wins. False teaching calling salvation through self-denial. But that's not what we believe, right? Salvation through self-denial, hopefully that looks really, really wrong. What, what words should be there in place of self-denial? Not rhetorical question. What should be there instead of self-denial? Faith. Saved through faith. It's not what the scriptures teach. We believe in salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We aren't saved by our behavior. You think that you're saved by your behavior? If you think you are saved by your behavior or you would be saved by your behavior, then you're either deluded into thinking that your behavior is good enough or you're despairing because your behavior will never be good enough. But those are, again, two ditches. Oh, then I am righteous, so I am saved. Oh, or I could never be that good enough. What's the point, right? But you've fallen off and the balance, the true position in the middle is it's not by good enough behavior or never mind, it's bad enough behavior. It's Christ is righteous. I trust in him. That's salvation. We aren't saved by our behavior. Not Paul wrote to Titus, another young assistant of his, that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy. And just as we are not saved by our behavior, neither are we sanctified by grit, effort, and rule following. You cannot be transformed into the image of Jesus through your own strength of will, but only by depending on the infinite strength of the Holy Spirit working in and through you. And then Paul, yes, with the help of the Holy Spirit, then said, and then I work harder than them all through his strength. So it's not just like, well, okay, not gonna do anything, just change me. But again, that's a different focus of a different sermon. Whenever we think about repentance, we must remember that it is not merely stopping a particular sinful behavior. That is not what repentance means. That's only the first step. Repentance must also involve replacing a sinful attitude and behavior with, a, with its Christ-like alternative. 
Okay, so we don't just stop lying by no longer talking, right? If you never say another word, then you won't lie. But is that really the solution of repentance? No, Paul says that we repent of lying by instead honoring God by speaking the truth, moving in the opposite direction. We don't just stop stealing and then keep everything we have to ourselves and for ourselves. Instead, we honor God by, instead of taking, by giving, by generously giving to meet the needs of others as God has met our needs, right? So take, take, no, 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 give, give, right? Not just lying, but speaking the truth. And here's, here's the point. The repentance of this false teaching, avoiding these type of things, is not ceasing to live life on earth. Repentance is not ceasing life on earth. It's actively living for God's glory. I just won't do anything. Well, then you haven't repented. You were driving down the road and you just slammed on the brakes and you're just sitting there. And eventually somebody's going to hit you. It's It's not how it works but actively living for God's glory. And here's where we get to the proper response in this text, the fight against false teaching. As we think about the fight against false teaching, that Paul, by the Spirit, is teaching us as followers of Christ, Christians, followers of Christ, children of God, how are we supposed to live in the world that God has made? And it can't just be by stopping Right? That's the whole point. Repentance is not just stop doing something. It's like, well, what am I supposed to do? I wonder if a lot of times in our battles against different things, it's kind of like our, all we're thinking is don't, 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 don't. It's like, well, what are you supposed to be replacing that with? I remember reading about that in relationship to like pornography. It's just like if your whole life is defined by don't look at this, don't look at this, don't look at this. It's like, well, it's good because you shouldn't be looking at it. But what are you going to look at? How are you going to think of other people and the world that God has made? Is your whole life defined by the negative aspect of the struggle that you're facing? That's not what the Christian life is. That can so easily just become another type of bondage rather than freedom. So how are we supposed to live in the world that God has made? Let's look again at the text. The problem with the false teaching that Paul is opposing, forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods, is that both of those things, marriage and foods, meats, Both of these things were created by God. God created them to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So how are we supposed to live in the world that God has made? Well, there's a few quick points that I hope sound very, very familiar to you. First, we we trust in him. We believe those to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe All of our lives are to be lives of faith. All of our lives as Christians are to be lives of repentance. We cannot overemphasize the importance of faith in God and in his promises for our salvation and for our sanctification. We walk by faith every moment of every day until faith becomes sight. So we believe, we trust in him. And second, we know his truth. It's what he also says. It's these things God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. How do we know his truth? By utilizing the means of grace that he has made available to us. The word of God, prayer, the gathering together of God's people for worship. 
We see two of these things at the end, right? The word made holy, consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So those who believe, those who know the truth are to be people of the word, to be people of prayer. And this is written to a church so we can throw the gathering of God's people in there as well. Where we come together to read his truth and to pray. Knowing God's truth for yourself is absolutely necessary if you were to oppose false teaching and avoid drifting away. You have to know what does God's word say. And Paul doesn't just oppose the false teaching by negating it. He doesn't say, they say don't get married. They say don't enjoy these foods. He doesn't say, well, no, no, no. The real teaching is don't avoid marriage and don't abstain from certain foods. So he doesn't just say, he doesn't just oppose it by negating it. He provides us with an alternative approach, and it is this. How are we supposed to live in God's world for his glory? How are we supposed to oppose this false teaching? We are supposed to gratefully enjoy God's good gifts. If you're writing anything down today, write this down. Right? If you're like, well, I already have a whole page full, just write it bigger over it, because this is the point that we've been driving to. The opposition of false teaching is to gratefully enjoy God's good gifts. Verses four and five, everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer gratefully enjoy God's good gifts. Where in scripture does Paul go to make his case for this? What passage is it? Verse three, verse four, he says it twice. What did God do? God created. So what, pe- what text is he going to? Genesis 1, and if you go to Genesis 1, as God created various things, forming them and shaping them, what was his evaluation? Dry land and seas, good. Vegetation, fruit-bearing trees, good. Fish, birds, sea creatures, good. Various, uh, various animals roaming the earth, good. Humanity as male and female created in God's image and able to reproduce additional image bearers, that's very good. All of it in its totality. Everything that God created is good. We need a theology of creation. And we need a theology of creation that doesn't stop at God created everything, the end, move on to the next subject. We don't give honor to God in what he has made simply by acknowledging his handiwork in it. Oh yeah, God made that. Set it to the side. Oh yeah, God made that. That's not creation. Paul says all of these things created by God are good, including marriage and meat, and none of them are to be rejected. And what is the opposite of a rejection? What is the opposite of rejecting something? Receiving it, and receiving it with thanksgiving. You know, typically to receive something is to receive it as a gift. Wow, this, you have, you have given this to me graciously given to me this good gift and typically receiving something with thanksgiving would mean you didn't earn it, right? Thank you for my paycheck. Well, you earned it. I'm legally obligated 
to do it, right? That's not, earning isn't a thanksgiving, right? Giving deserves thanksgiving. So I get back to my point. We don't glorify God in the world that he made simply or merely by acknowledging his creativity, but by enjoying his creativity. Not just by acknowledging, but enjoying his creativity with our minds and hearts and affections set on him all the time. How are we supposed to live in the world that God has made? We gratefully enjoy God's good gifts. And what are some of these gifts? Things like marriage. A good gift from a good God to be received with thanksgiving. So as Christians, it shouldn't just be like, oh, the old ball and chain. We we shouldn't talk like that. We shouldn't think like that. We should receive it as a gift from God and the intimacy inside of marriage as a gift from God to be enjoyed and received with thanksgiving. Children are a gift from the Lord. What, what psalm was it where it was uh, arrows in a quiver? 127, 128, do I have that right? Arrows in a quiver and olive branches around a table. And if you remember, I built a whole table and I tell you it's full of all sorts of olive branches. Do we recognize that as a blessing from God? Or do we take it like the world takes it as a curse? Do we gratefully enjoy God's good gifts to us? Family, a good gift from a good God. If you're like, well, I don't have family around here. It's not true because I see a whole bunch of family around here, right? So if there are people that don't have as much family as you, what do we do as Christians? We bring into family, right? That's what this is supposed to be about. This is a church family, that we are brought together, the family of God adopted under that. So we all are family and we welcome, we receive that gift. Food and drink, gifts from God to be enjoyed with thanksgiving, right? Bacon, right? We receive good gifts like, boy, this tastes good. Does that mean it's not godly? Question is asked, who made it taste good? Answer, God. And so you can receive it with thanksgiving. And our lives can be filled with these type of things. You know what another gift from God is? Work. Do we gratefully enjoy the good gift of work that God has given us? Whatever your work might be. See, a lot of, a lot of the, the church at large, a lot of Christianity for a long time lost the fact that Plumbing and carpentry and farming and gardening and welding and chiropractic. They didn't probably have chiropractics, but it fits. Right? Like whatever it is, it's just like, oh, that's just like that normal stuff. It's not really good. It's not really bad. It's just sort of blank. But then you've got the, then you've got the monks or the nuns or the priests or the preachers. Those are the ones whose work pleases God. But all the rest of us, we just sort of, you know, butcher, baker, candlestick maker. Like that's just... Like God's not going to crush me for it because somebody has to do it, but it can't be pleasing to him. This is totally wrong. And the reformers were like, they called foul on that. They called foul on the restriction against marriage. Like, why would we not allow this gift that God has given all people to enjoy? That's absurd. Like, why would we not see holy God-glorifying activity in all of these fields, all of these crafts, all of these, uh, all this work? You know what else is a gift from God? Rest. Rest is a gift from God. One-seventh of our time. 
supposed to be rest. We talked about Sabbath a little bit this week, right? God took a break, not because he needed it, but because he knew that we need it. Do you receive rest, not because the work is done, but because you need it, and you're never going to get all the work done? Do you receive rest and gratefully enjoy it as a gift from God? So if you feel guilty every time that you take a break, then you're missing the point of this text. Gratefully enjoy God's good gifts. What about play? Work, rest, what about just play? Can play be a God-glorifying good to be received by his creatures? Is that just like for kids because they don't know any better? It's like, well, what's the holy purpose of it? I can't, I can't play, but I'll exercise. As long as I'm miserable in whatever I'm doing. That's what's pleasing to God. No, that's, that's that sanctification just through self-denial, right? But God made us to enjoy the world that he's made. Right? Well, you can work too much, you can rest too much, you can play too much, but in the balance of that, a life that is pleasing to God includes work and rest and play. Kids, you can remind me of this. What about Beauty. Is beauty a gift from God? You know, we think of beauty, we only think of like this person being beautiful because they're cosmetically or well-dressed or something like that. This is not what beauty, that's not the limitation of beauty. What about just nature in itself? Clouds this morning, there were like two layers of clouds this morning. I happen to be looking outside of my window. So you get to see them from below. You ever been in an airplane and seen the clouds from above? This is like, is there even an earth anymore? It's beautiful. You just walk through the woods and look at the trees and just listen and just enjoy the colors. So, well, where am I going? You're not going anywhere. You're just wandering through the woods. And if you do it with a disc in your hand, it's even more fun. I'm just telling you. I'm going to get you guys to this. Do we enjoy the beauty, stars, clouds, rain, waterfalls, deserts and cactuses, I guess, have their own type of beauty? Do we enjoy the beauty that is in nature? Glaciers, um, what, have, what have I missed? Islands, we're not really beach people, but some people are, that's good. Sunrises, sunsets, beauty in this. What about art? What about creativity of God into his image bearers and communicated through pencil or chalk or paint? Do we see the creativity of God reflected into the creativity of people and can we enjoy this as a gift from God? Not only does he paint, but he allows us to paint. What about music? Is it just supposed to be utilitarian or can it just be enjoyable? Can it help you in feeling happy? Can it help you in feeling sad? Can it help you to be excited? Can it help you to be calm? Is there not beauty in all of these different types of things? And that I mean you're gonna like every type of music. I'm not an organ guy at all. And like I get that I'm sure it meets some, you know, official standard of it. It's like, that's great. You enjoy organ. I'm gonna listen to something else. Just like give me some guitar and drums. <laughs> it's it's a little bit more enjoyable, my style. What about laughter? It's a good gift from God. It's okay for Christians to laugh. Like, not just like <laughs> It's a not cathartic and glorifying to God for you to just, just to lose it laughing. Do you guys do that? That's me. I mean, like tears flowing, can't breathe. Doesn't happen all the time, but that is good. That can be gratefully received from God. If you don't laugh like that, just you need to find something that's funny. Stories. God tells stories. God communicated his truth to us predominantly by story. 
and made us then storytelling people to communicate truth. Creativity, friendship, good gifts from God to be gratefully received by his people. And it is true that not all of these gifts are available to all of God's people in the same way all the time. And I'm sure even in mentioning some of those things, some of your hearts broke because it's not gonna happen again. Right, Mother's Day, we're painfully aware of a loss in our own lives about that. And so we can't gratefully enjoy that gift right now. And that's one of the sadnesses and trials that we face living in a cursed world infected with sin. But even in the pain from not possessing all of these gifts ourselves, for whatever reason, in the providence of God, we are still being pointed to the goodness of them. Right? Longing for something, even if you can't receive it, still shows the goodness of that gift, and even more so the goodness of their creator, and a longing when all things are made right again. So do we honor God just by getting married or eating meat? Just by doing it? Just by going outside to nature or looking at clouds or painting or looking at something, listening to music, having friends? Is it just simply by doing it that we're glorifying God? And the answer to that is no. Right? That's not just the opposite of it. The repeated emphasis of thanksgiving in this text reminds us that it is the thankful acceptance. Thankful to who? I don't think I heard anybody. God, thank you. Thankful to God, the thankful acceptance of God's good gifts that is being defended in this text. Not just an autonomous materialism or hedonism. Not like, oh, don't receiving it, that's bad, so just worship it. No, that's, that's again, that's just the other ditch. The antidote to rejection is not mere reception, but rather reception with thankfulness to God as the acknowledged giver of these good gifts. So what does a life that pleases God look like? Life that pleases God. Picture the epitome of a holy, godly person. Are they somber, austere, detached from activities of this world? Do they prefer long, isolated times of prayer rather than mingling with troublesome people? Maybe you're thinking of the monk alone in the mountain cave, occasionally drinking stale water and nibbling on crusty bread and cold vegetables. Is that the epitome of holiness and godliness? Contrast that with the life of Jesus in the Gospels. How many feasts did Jesus go to? He was always at a really good dinner with lots of people everywhere, sometimes even helping to provide the wine for it. Right? Jesus celebrated enough to be accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Doesn't mean he was, but there's like, well, you can't enjoy this this much without it being sinful. Jesus was like, watch me. How much of life did Jesus enjoy? How often did he use normal life activities that he obviously appreciated to point out truths of God? Yes, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, but if you look at the content of his teaching, Jesus enjoyed birds and flowers and weather and fishing and shepherding and gardening and carpentry. And why? Because he gratefully received these as gifts from God. So what about you? How are you living in this world? Are you indulging your sinful flesh contrary to God's commands? 
Repent. Turn from that. There's no joy. There's no satisfaction. There's no pleasing God to be found in indulging sinful pleasures, your sinful flesh. Or are you denying yourself any enjoyment in this life to produce a greater spirituality and holiness? Repent. There's no joy and freedom in the gospel to be found in that. There's a third way. It is the best and only way to avoid this false teaching. Gratefully enjoy God's good gifts. In the words of the text, receive everything that you have with thanksgiving as created by God and therefore good. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for creation that you've made. How easy it is for our eyes either to be closed to it or, as Romans says, to worship created things rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Free us from both of these these cells, this bondage to sin and, and corruption. Let us see and enjoy your good gifts as you are a good creator, an amazing creator. Your wisdom and goodness and beauty displayed in the things that you have made, even with the fallenness of the world, yet that still remains true. And so may we display that gratefully as we've been rescued from our sin. Um, Teach us to fight against this false teaching by gratefully enjoying your good gifts. Um, May this be to your glory, we pray, amen.